Oh, every time I see this episode, it hits me. Every single time. It actually shares that trait with all good things, believe it or not. I've already talked about this, and I think I talked about it back in my All Good Things video. But these two finales have always been a shining example of Star Trek in general, but of the shows in particular. There's a reason TNG and DS9 sit at the top of the list for me. And there's actually, there's actually a lot of reasons. But this is one of them. Both of them had great finales, which is interesting in its own right. I was thinking about that uh, just a few minutes ago while I was uh, wiping the tears off my face, was they're the only good finales. <laughs> I mean, TOS doesn't have a finale in any particular sense of the word. You know, unless you count Kirk uh, trading bodies with a woman, which I don't think that really qualifies. And then we have Voyager, which has Endgame, which is crap. Which is a damn shame, because as a defender of Voyager, I felt that the latter half of Voyager, basically season 5 and onwards, was really doing very well. But then Endgame happened, and it's like, okay. Uh, Enterprise. Well, Enterprise is a weird one, because Enterprise has Demon. Or I think it's Demon. It's Demon or Terra Prime, but it's whatever one is the, the, the last one of that uh, particular arc. And that's a damn good episode, but it's not actually a finale. And no episodes happen after it. Although, if, if you want to be completely honest, if we do count these are the voyages, then that's just total garbage. And of course, by the time I'm recording this, Discovery hasn't ended yet, so... And Picard hasn't even started yet, so yeah, that's kind of it. No, I'm not counting the animated series. I actually don't remember the final episode of the animated series off the top of my head, so please forgive me. Despite the fact that all good things and what we uh, what you left behind, or what we left behind? What you leave behind? Oh, God, I can't remember which is which. Hang on, hang on, let me pull up my thing here. What you leave behind, because <clears throat> there's the documentary. Uh, despite the total lack of competition, I really do love both of these episodes. Unironically... You know, un unashamedly. Both of them have their flaws. And what's funny is both of them have basically one major flaw, and the rest of it's great. All Good Things had the uh, plot issues, which I discussed in that video. And this episode has the Parathes. But other than those little sticking thumbs out there, the rest of the episodes are just phenomenal. But this one is even more unique. All Good Things ended on a, and the adventure continues. DS9 ended. <laughs> and that's a very different weight, uh, a very different method between them. In fact, Iris Stephen Barris commented in interviews that he wanted to specifically push that idea because he wanted to establish a framework. If anyone was to continue these stories, he wanted them to follow in the framework that he has established rather than just, and then next time things continue, which is kind of how things were done in general. As I've said before, in many ways, Babylon 5, yeah, I know, weird parallel, was kind of the forerunner of the, t the way television would go in the future. And I feel Deep Space Nine was also in that same early wave of the way television is now. You know, long-term story arcs and, you know, string continuity and far more plot and character focus across episodes is basically the norm nowadays and has become the norm because shows like these two helped to establish that, you know, 20 years ago. So, 
I'm gonna. I'm not gonna discuss behind the scenes stuff first, like I normally do. I'm gonna discuss it as it comes up because this is kind of a weird episode structurally. Speaking of which, I'm also not gonna discuss the episode linearly. I'm gonna discuss the three major beats of the episode in what I believe to to be ascending order: uh, worst and least important to best and most important. Which means we're starting with the par eights because it doesn't freaking matter. I'm actually really curious of your guys' thoughts on this one. I thought, okay, maybe you're being too harsh, Laura. Maybe walking into this, you're just being too, you know, too finagly. Maybe you should walk into this and think, okay, it's okay. Because I've said for years, and I stand by this even to this day, that the prophets always worked for me in Deep Space Nine. But the reason why wasn't because I love mysticism stuff or spiritual stuff or whatever. It was because of the way they were specifically implemented across the show. They were tied in at the very beginning. It was pseudo-spiritual, but not really, because it was a tangible, factual, provable, demonstrable thing. There's the fact that they were well-designed and made sense within the confines of the show, so, you know, self-contiguous. There's the fact that they only poked their head in every so often, and generally each time they did it was something, you know, substantial or relevant, either for the plot arc, like with the Dominion War, or for character arcs, like which happened with Sisko many times. In short... I was with the Prophets because of how they used them. This is, of course, the exact reason why I am not with the Paw Wraiths. Because the Paw Wraiths are here to be the devil. No, no, they're, they're here to be the demon. They, they literally call Dukat a demon. And at the end of the episode, Dukat spends eternity imprisoned in a fiery inferno. Little too on the nose there. <clears throat> so, hey, Dukat's fine. That's great. He's recovered. And they bicker, and they bicker, and they bicker. Am I the only one who thought of an old married couple who have since, you know, divorced when I was watching these two? My goodness. I mean, they do a good job of it, but it got a little tiresome, I'll be honest. This is the funny part, though. The one and only thing I liked about this arc was that Kaiwin... I'm going to keep calling her like that. Kaiwin cracks the whip on him from a position of weakness. Now, that's very her. She's the politician. She's always been the politician, the manipulator, the schemer, the liar. She's always been the person to try and twist things to her advantage. And so despite the fact that he could literally just snap her neck, probably pretty easily if he wanted to, she manages to nevertheless maintain a controlling circumstance the entire time. Then they get to the fire caves, a.k.a. the Badlands, and... She removes her robe of station and lets out her hair and looks kind of weird, if I'm being honest. And you know, takes it and she's so happy. She just seems so happy. She even kisses Dukat, like, yes, we're here. We did it. Then she offers him the drink and poisons him. Up until this exact moment in time, I'm completely with all of this. You remember what I already talked about? The idea of her usurping Dukat as the position of the demon makes so much sense to me. And when I was watching this for the first time, I was just like, ah, called it. Yep, no, she's going to be the final boss. No, actually, Dukat is the final boss of this uh, show. I almost said game. The final boss of this show. And I get why they wanted that, and I don't care. As I've said before, Dukat died already. Uh, he died back in Sacrifice of Angels, or whatever the second part of that was called. And this is just something walking around in his skin. Literally and metaphorically. So Dukat gets back up. He's a Cardassian again, of course. 
And then that's officially the end of my interest. And I was already not involved involved because I don't care for the Paro storyline. And we find out that their big plan is to burn the galaxy. To burn Bajor and then the quadrant and then the, the universe, actually, is what he says. To burn the whole universe. We know with total certainty that these beings are actually affectable by things that, you know, mortals can make because that's already happened more than once, actually. These are, after all, demonstrable beings. These are not Q. Does anyone really think the Parathes actually could have burned the galaxy? I mean, they could have made a mess. They probably would have burned Bajor, and that still sucks. But the problem is they're being touted as if they are a galactic threat. They're not. That's, uh, I think, point number 37 about why I don't really care for the Parades. Also, why do they want to burn everything again? That's never discussed. Or, I mean, they're evil. They're evil. Don't think about it. Which is reason number 38. I don't like the Parades. Don't mistake me. Purely evil does serve a purpose in fiction, just like purely good does. You need to have contrasts to help make the gray matter. If everything is gray, it becomes a morass, a, a, a quagmire. But if you make it so that there's things to help show contrast, that can work, and that has worked in many works of fiction very well. I'm not, it's not the fact that they're pure evil that bothers me. It's the fact that they're pure evil with no motives. Their motive is to be evil. That's just boring writing at that point. Why do you want to burn the universe? <laughs> so, then they demonstrate their enormous power by having mild, weak telekinetic abilities. Jean Grey, before she became Phoenix, would put this to shame. <sighs> there are a couple of cool scenes. I'll give them that. Um, there's the bit where uh, Kaiwin raises up the book, and then she just lowers her hand and it's gone, and we cut to Ducat, and he has the book. You notice, by the way, that Ducat and Sisko are not in the same shot a lot. That's because Sisko accidentally actually punched Mark Alemo, like hard, and he had to recover from that one. So... They couldn't, they couldn't slip the schedule, so they had to just film everything segregate in order to make it work. God, the, the horrors of making TV, am I right? <clears throat> Anyways, th I think that probably hurts the climactic finale a bit, because there's no big climax between Sisko and Ducat. Ducat uses his weak telekinetic power in order to force Sisko to his knees, because... Probably the one thing I will give this to being the real Ducat is there's that petty need to win. doesn't matter what it costs him. What matters is that he won, that he finally made Sisko kneel before him, and he finally proved he was better. Damn it. I'm with that. But, um... So, you know, forced... And... Then, you know, the, the book thing happens, and Ducat just burns her, and that's the end of Kaiwen. Bye. That's, that's a terrible send-off for her. For someone who has been such a regular and surprisingly interesting villain for so many years, I know a lot of you have expressed in the comments that she is a get-off-your-screen character, so I, I get that several of you will not agree with me on this, but I think that's a terrible send-off for her, just personally. Emissary, the book, and then burn to death. Actually, when I say burned to death, I mean burned into fading off the screen. There's not even a corpse or ash left over. So that's just really disappointing. Not that I wanted to see a burnt skeleton. This isn't a new hope, after all. <clears throat> then, then Cisco charges Ducat, and the book burns, and then Ducat burns, and then they're now imprisoned in the fire caves forever. 
I'm probably the only person who thinks about things like that, but when you think about the word forever, uh, things take a different tint. Like, they're imprisoned in the fire caves, okay, right? What happens when the Bajoran star goes nova? Or it becomes a black hole? Like, what happens when that planet is, is reduced to the point of not being a planet anymore? Are they still going to be imprisoned in a chunk of rock that used to be the fire caves? What exactly is the element that keeps them fixed there? If it's the geographical location, then they're going to have some problems in a few hundred million years. And I know what you're thinking, that's forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is it a separate sub-dimension? Which is my personal headcanon, by the way. That the book was literally a uh, beacon in between the dimensions, and for whatever reason, the fire caves was a spot where the dimensional barrier was weaker. With the book gone, there's no way to break the dimension. Well, there's no... there's The built-in door into the dimension is now gone. So the only way to break in or out is with sufficient power and time. Which is another thing. But we'll not get into that one either. Oh, and of course, Ducat is now imprisoned forever in hell. We already kind of talked about that. And Cisco goes to a place of all white. Yeah, as I said, symbolism is a little bit too on the nose. Cisco... Cisco speaks vaguely, of course kind of non-linearly. Um, th this scene was actually changed. In the original the script, it was very unambiguous that Sisko would never return. In the new script, it was designed to say that he absolutely would return. Now, I find that interesting, because until I read that, I didn't assume that. I used to debate with friends whether or not you know, we thought Sisko would ever return, and it's worth noting that to all accounts and purposes, he never has. Even in STO, which has continued the adventures of DS9 in a rather awesome fashion, there's still no Sisko, not really. I know what, I know what you're going to bring up. But he's still, you know, he's still in the temple, in other words. He has not returned, so... Wonder, what do you think, basically? I mean, I know that out of character, they flat out said he would return. And the specific reason they did that, by the way, just in case you're wondering, is Avery Brooks didn't like the implications of a black man leaving his wife and child forever. Fair enough, I suppose. <laughs> I'm not going to argue it because I wanted him to come back anyways because I hate this ending. Yeah, I have to go be with the prophets for an undetermined period of time. And this leads me to my final point. I always assumed it was going to be forever. Or worse than that, actually. Why? Let's think of this for a second. The prophets are nonlinear. Now, they've been slowly introduced concepts of linearity, but Sisko himself now mentions that it, his life is now nonlinear. And he mentions that he might come back in a year or yesterday. The idea being that Sisko has effectively reached the terminus point of the flat circle, that his life will now loop back in on itself. That's what I always assumed from the way they were phrasing it. What do you guys think? Again, as I already mentioned. But that's the end of the Paw Wraiths. Good riddance. Moving on. Keiko makes her only Season 7 appearance. They actually went out of their way. I mentioned that they saved a lot of money to, to do this episode. Funnily enough, an enormous amount of the budget was just put towards guest stars. Just to bring everyone in. Because basically everyone's here. And I'll mention more about that later. But a lot of people were brought in, and that took a lot of time and money and coordination to get all these people available over the same, uh, what was it, 15-day shoot or whatever. But they brought everyone in. Keiko shows up. O'Brien's going to go home to be a teacher. That's interesting. Meanwhile, the fleet is going to go to Cardassia. And everyone just has these these scenes of togetherness and goodbyeness, and there's this tension in the air, which is great. 
I almost wish some of them died in the battle. Originally, Sisko was actually going to die in the battle, but be brought back for the actual final encounter, because nobody gives a damn about the war with the Dominion. That hasn't been the focus of the show for four years. No, we want to see the conclusion of the fire race, right? By the way, that's reason number 39, why I don't like the fire race thing. It feels like, okay, we've... It, it, it feels pathetic after the conclusion of the Dominion War. And, again, I never had any investment or cared about it to begin with, so having that be the final boss... Anyways. So, I get it. They don't want to kill off regulars. I do get that. So, you know, we're going to do this. Um... The Founder says that she's going to give Romulus and Earth to the Breen. You know, another flaw of the Breen is we never actually learn anything about them. Their motives, or their culture, their personalities, or anything. They really seem insistent on becoming a dominant power here, and there's almost a vindictiveness to it. And... They also seem to be very stupid, just to be as blunt as I can. At multiple scenes in this episode, the Founder... Female Changeling plays the Breen commander like a chump. Oh, if you insist on going to the front lines, I will miss your company. Blah, 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 yeah, go fight and die. She flat out admits to Wayun that she is just straight up lying to these people, which brings me to an interesting thought. So let's assume the Dominion wins here. Okay, not that hard to assume. She says that then, you know, the Breen will be given these territories until, you know, actually no, that Wayun and the Dominion will have those territories. How? Remember, they're still not going through the wormhole. So even if they win, they probably would still avoid the wormhole because of the loss of the thousand ships. How are they going to connect back home, per se? Especially when she dies. Never mind the fact that all of the founders are dying and she's aware of this fact. I had a weird thought that maybe they were just going to send off a fleet, or indeed have already sent off a fleet, that was just going to make the 75-year trip, and they were just going to kind of do a holding pattern for 75 years until the actual Dominion fleet showed up, and then, hey, <laughs> we're here to take charge. I, I have no idea what they were thinking. Maybe they would just brave the wormhole and say, screw it. So, comms are cut off. That was actually a good move on behalf of the resistance movement, really, for two reasons. The other one I'll get to in a minute. But first of all, it does actually serve as a substantial and legitimate hindrance to the war effort. And even though the Dominion is in a strong position, they need every advantage they can get. They are not at the point of being what I call death walking. If you've never heard me talk about that really briefly, death walking is when you are so overpowered that you don't have to try, that you can casually walk through the enemy. You don't have to push, you don't have to put effort in, it's just, nope, 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 nope. To use a counterexample, Dukat with the power of the Pawraith is not death-walking. He still has to put substantial effort into it, and what he does is so limited that he has to constantly be on his guard. And so are the Dominion here. So, losing communications, good move. There's a nice pre-battle chat, which is really good, too. No music during the whole scene, and, you know... Everyone just kind of chats, and Worf... There's actually a pretty good bit. Worf mentions, I do approve, but I am going to have to kill him. And you say I don't have a sense of humor. Funnily enough, I've actually always liked Worf's sense of humor. It's understated, and it doesn't show up often. But when he, he tells a joke, it usually gets me. It's a good scene. Helps to establish the tension. Uh, we get a lot of scenes with Nog, too, who's kind of taken a back seat during most of Season 7. Well, this latter part, the, the finale, the final ten episodes of Season 7. I should be more clear here. And 
Then we cut to Quark. Now, this is actually one of the great ironies of television and film design. You learn this kind of stuff getting into this. I'm sure a lot of you already know this. You don't always make things linearly. You make things in the order that it makes most sense from a real-life production standpoint to make them. So they actually, the very final shot filmed for the entire series was Quark and Vic Fontaine playing Go Fish. It adds a little bit of extra huh to the scene. It's a good scene, and Quark is, of course, very worried about them, and blah, blah, blah. But when he finally has that final line, go fish, that technically means that from a real-life perspective, those are the final lines of the series, which also means, by the way, that both in-character and out-of-character, Quark had the final lines of the series. Something about that very much amuses me. But, you know, the set reasons, uh, prop reasons, scheduling reasons, there's all sorts of reasons why you would do things out of order. Again, this is commonplace. This is true for video games, movies, and television. Even my show is kind of out of order from time to time, depending on the demands of my own schedule. So, anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so, the founder insists the Breen can fight alongside. <laughs> I love that. Just, yeah. uh, um, there's this bit where, you know, they're like, okay, we have to react. It's Broca comes in, the, 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 the bootlicker of the Cardassians. And they need to show. They need to tell what to do. There's this really great bit where the founder actually grabs Broca by the neck. And obviously, Salome Jones is not a particularly strong woman. And you could tell that she's just kind of holding her, his, her uh, hand there. But you get the impression that this is the, the changeling, which, remember, are actually very strong beings, just effortlessly picking up and, and, sh and shaking him. You can almost feel like they wanted to put him up on a thing and cart him around because the camera isn't showing his feet, so they could have literally put him up on a, like a pulley or whatever and have him... Uh, you know, um, it helps to show that. And, of course, this show of strength is very important. And you notice she's totally starting to lose her composure, by the way. There's a cold fury about her in almost every scene. And she gets sardonic. Not sarcastic. Sardonic. There's an acidity to her tone, which is wonderful. Uh, Sloan Jens does a great job in this episode. Huge props. Makes me want to kill her. Because then their reaction to this is, okay, they got the comms along. We've decided to wipe out a whole city. A couple million people dead. Yay! That's their reaction. The novelization of this episode reveals that Weyoun actually was stupid enough to broadcast that on an open frequency, to everyone, in other words. And that is the specific reason why the Cardassian fleet turns on them. Interesting to think about. Anyways, <clears throat> I want you to keep that in mind, though. So there's this great bit where Garrick's voice and face have become far more cold. Damar is kind of already used to this. He's already found his mark. But Garrick, ironically... Well, Garrick... I've said this before, I'll say this again. Garrick's a patriot. He really does legitimately love Cardassia. Not the Union, but Cardassia. It's people, it's culture. I'll bring that point up later. He is hit very hard by them just casually wiping out a city and the millions of people that live there. Now, I mean, duh, of course he is, but he has hit the hardest of any of them. And he is far more brusque and brutal about basically everything from this point until the end of the episode. So the Battle of Cardassia happens. Somewhat recently, uh, we were discussing uh, battle tactics. I was actually discussing it with Lore Reloaded and battle tactics in Starfleet and Star Trek. And how one thing Star Trek really needed is the concept of an interdictor. 
in Star Wars, there's a concept called an interdictor. It's a type of ship, but basically what it means is they set out a gravity well, an artificial gravity well, which doesn't allow for hyperdrive to act. Now, that's extremely important because when you have faster-than-light travel, which you can just jump into and out of basically at will, you know, with, with proper calculations and time, all of a sudden a whole new layer of strategy and tactics has been opened up. Like, the, the opportunity of doing micro-jumps in order to reposition or remaneuver or outflank is something that should happen. In some of the well-written Star Wars works, people actually use hyperspace in, as, a, as a tactical tool. Star Trek doesn't do that because Star Trek doesn't have interdictors. There's nothing stopping a ship from just warping to a new location and then warping back. In fact, if you think about it, the only, the only real example of that is the frickin' Picard maneuver, which was referenced, like, twice and never again. And even the Picard maneuver, as I discussed way back in the battle, doesn't actually work, if you think about it for a millisecond. So, why? So, again, this is why an interdictor concept would make perfect sense. I bring all this up because the Battle of Cardassia is one of the rare times where it makes at least a little bit of sense that the fleets decide to fight. Because the point is that they have withdrawn to a point where if you're going to fight the fleet, there's no other way to fight the fleet. They're not trying to get through the fleet like they have in previous episodes. They're trying to fight the fleet. So, of course, they would actually go to them and fight them, and they're all in one condensed space. So it actually does make a degree of sense. There's some really good stuff here. I don't, I don't have much to detail, although there's a loop-the-loop shot from the perspective of the Defiant, excuse me, the Defiant B, which is actually a really good shot. Excellent praise on that. Apparently it's a favorite shot, but I, I love that shot. I noticed as I was watching the battle, though, there's not a lot of Cardassian losses. It's almost like the Cardassian ships aren't really engaging. If we look at it, obviously this is a cavalry moment, or cavalry moment, um, where the idea is that the Cardassians, you know, come in at the last moment. They go, waiting, waiting, wait till Europe really, really needs us. Now go! But I bring that up because actually, even in-universe, it does make sense. The Cardassians are probably spending all this time talking to each other, coordinating amongst each other, and trying to figure out what they want to do about what's happened until the fleet basically comes to the conclusion of, yeah, no, this is unacceptable. We need to we need to revolt. We need to turn against the Dominion. Which means even the Cardassian military was in favor of that. Now, that's saying something. I really wish we had seen a Cardassian face to the fleet. In fact, it would have been nice to see a Romulan face to the fleet, too. But no, the entire fleet affair is Sisko, Ross, and Martok. Bit of a shame. Moving on. We already have a huge guest list, so I, I, I get it. And there's not really... Uh, oh, you know what would have been awesome? Have Gull Evek come back. This is in my mind because I was, I was covering TNG recently. Have Gull Evek come back from the whole Maquis thing. He was actually a, he was in six episodes of uh, TNG and DS9 and Voyager. And having that callback, having him be the guy coordinating, that would have been a nice little touch, but, you know, whatever. That's hindsight. Mila is the first character to die. And what's interesting about it is Garrick completely loses his cool over that. Now, that, is, that makes perfect sense. Now, Garrick's losing his cool nearly gets them all killed. And, in fact, it's, it's kind of horrible. But I bring that up because that is Garrick in a nutshell, isn't it? For all his cold calculus, for all his spy mentality, for all the fact that he is, as Andrew Robinson himself has said, a killer, the fact of the matter is that he really cares about people and individuals, and he is a very loyal individual. Seeing Mila die hit him really, really hard. She was basically family to him. She was probably his only family, really. 
The only the only other two people who come close are Bashir and Odo. And that's recent. So him seeing her, he completely loses it, and that gets them captured. And uh there's this wonderful bit where the where, where you know the ah, founder, we have captured them. Excellent, have them executed immediately. Of course, they don't do that because if they just executed them immediately, whatever. But the, Jim Hunter even says, we prefer prisoners to die on their feet. Any last words? No. We're at last words are not permitted. And then, because, it can, of course, the Cardassians have been watching cavalry films, they shoot at the last second rather than earlier. They might have actually not lost a guy if they'd done that. But I love what the Cardassian says as he shoots the Jem'Hadar. That was for Lacarian City. And it becomes very clear and apparent why the Cardassians are firmly, all of them, are firmly on the side of the good guys at this point. There's going to be a lot of mess and gray and blech to follow through on after this, but for right now, the Cardassians are firmly anti-Dominion. Why wouldn't they be? Think about how much the Cardassian place value on territory and home and family. Now think about one of their cities on their people being destroyed by an occupying power, which... At, 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 Anybody who thought the Dominion were their allies no longer thinks that the moment a city is destroyed by Dominion forces, killing millions of people, family members, cultural people. You know, everyone. Again, I pointed this out. The founder keeps shooting herself in the foot because this was incredibly the wrong call. If anything, actually, completely bailing on Cardassia might have been the correct call here. But again, she ha she's aiming for another goal. I'll talk about that in a minute. So, the cards turn on them, and the battle might have been lost if not for Cardassians joining the side. As I mentioned before, this is a very long, brutal, bloody battle, and it is something that is very horrible and unpleasant, and a lot of people do die. You'll notice Ross, who I do you know, give credit for being one of the good Starfleet admirals, but even Ross wants to pull back and just say, no more losses. It is the other two, Sisko and Martok, who have to be like, no, dude, this is our chance. This is the only chance we have to push. But I love that the battle might have been lost if not for the aid of the Cardassian military. There's a wonderful irony to that. And, of course, the Cardassian military probably would not have swapped if not for the destruction of Lacarian City. This then leads to Broca, who's like, let me go talk to them. You might in initiate their patriotism, yes. Or they might convince you, what? No, I'm loyal. And he's just dragged off to be executed. Remember that. Then the founder says, I want the Cardassians exterminated. Uh, which ones? All of them. The entire population. Weyoun's reaction to that... I, I, Weyoun is a very cold fish, but even he has a moment of just... Uh, that will take some time. Then I suggest you get on it. Okay. And the administrator that he is, he can't say no to his boss. So, he doesn't. And millions and millions of Cardassians start being genocided. You ever wonder why I call the Founders evil? No, of course you don't wonder, because you have a brain! Anyways, so they have to push. I mentioned that earlier. What's funny is there's a moral reason to push, but they don't know that reason yet. In fact, they don't find that out until after they have the decision to push. But the tactical reason is it's obvious. They do need to push this offensive. Odo later finds out that the Cardassians are being exterminated. That's the moral reason. If they don't push, they might not be able to save the Cardassian people. And, I mean, I'm pretty sure that even the Federation would hesitate about just casually wiping out the Cardassian race. 
I know what we could say about the founders, but really the founders are just a completely other ballpark in this one. And the ones committing genocide. Hey, that's funny how that works. So Garrick, the killer, says, no, I'm, I'm going to do this for revenge. Meanwhile, the founder is still playing the Breen. Oh, no, don't go. Oh, very well. I will feel better with you on the front lines. You know, I like to think, this is just headcanon, but I like to think that the Breen took so many losses in this that that's why they're not a major player afterwards. Now, I say that. Obviously, they could have been a major player afterwards. I don't know. Because as I talked about before, DS9 is basically the end of the Star Trek timeline, uh, at least until the stuff that's already come out by the time this video comes out has gone out. <clears throat> but I do actually like to think the Breen just kind of... It kind of got smashed. I like to think even further, they don't say anything about this, but I like to think even further, the Dominion was like, stop the attack. And the Jem'Hadar stopped attacking, the Breen are like, no! And then the Breen are wiped out. Boop! Because I'm totally in favor of genocide against the Breen. I'm kidding. That's not genocide. It isn't. Because that's taking out an enemy. But I'll come back to that point in a second. Do, do remember that, though. Garrick starts laughing because they can't get in the door. This is actually a great moment, because what's happening is up until this point, it's just been this build of tension and adrenaline, in character and out, for all these people. And then they're like, ha-ha, we just have to get through this door. How do we get through the door? I don't know. <laughs> and it's, it is actually funny. It's even funnier, because Broca is let out the door to be executed. Yet another time, the founder has made the wrong call. That's what lets them get in. Good job. And, of course, the reason they're able to make it... They do take a lot of losses on the way, but the reason they're able to make it to the Founder is because all those Jim and are off executing Cardassians. Another good call. There's this bit where the Founder sits down. She actually has a good scene. I, I refuse to sympathize with her. Where she talks about how she would be okay with her dying, but her entire people are dying, too. And she also mentioned that Williams the only solid she trusts. And of course, she doesn't think of it that way because she thinks of all the Williams as the same person, which is wrong. But I love the bit where Williams says, oh, if only I would give my life if it would save you. And her response is, oh, if only it were that simple. If only you could die so we wouldn't have to because you're not worth anything compared to us because we're the founders. <sighs> Damar is the second one to die. He, uh, he falls in, in the conflict at the door. And I love how Kira is the one to bring the call. We follow his orders. We do this final charge. For Cardassia! For Cardassia! Charge! So they come in. They manage to make it through. Again, only a few survive. And they, in fact, only two of them actually make it inside and live to tell the tale. But they now officially have Weyoun and the female changing at their mercy. Garrick is a merciless, calculating killer. He has no hesitation about killing someone if there's a reason to do so. I've demonstrated this and pointed this out many times throughout the course of this series. He does, he does hesitate to kill Wayun, but not in the, oh, should I, shouldn't I? No, he hesitates to savor the moment. There's a moment of just, and then like, like there's that inhale of, yep, there we go, dead. There's that revenge killer thing that I mentioned earlier coming back through. So Wayne's dead. The founder, of course, says, well, no, I'm not going to surrender. Why would I? I'm about to die, so you can't threaten me, and I'm going to make sure that you suck. I'm going to make sure that you have to crawl through ash and your own bodies to win. For two reasons. One, spite. 
pure, brutal spite. But there's another reason. Odo says, let me go. Let me go talk to them. Let me go talk to her, actually, be more specific. I've heard what's about to happen argued for about 20 years, actually. And I am looking forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on this event in the comments. I really am. Because this is the moment where Odo convinces the founder to turn herself over to a war tribunal for war crimes, uh, sign a peace treaty, and end the war at the cost of the cure and Odo. Interesting to think about, though. What I love about it is this is when... You'll notice the changeling, the female changeling, is noticeably different when she talks to Odo than everyone else. Now, that makes sense because of the founder mentality. But she admits to him, this has to happen. They have to be crushed because otherwise the Federation will come through and crush us. There's still that we-have-to-be-in-control fear driving her at the very core of... I'd say actually just outside the core of all her being. The very core is founders matter more than everything else. But right outside of that is that fear, the shell. Now Odo, what's funny is Odo hits her with hard logic. And he is correct. Uh, the Federation will not allow that. And the others will not move against the Federation. The Federation is simply in a position of too much power. Militarily, economically, geographically, politically. Religiously, no. Um, but the Federation is simply in a position of too much power to allow a campaign against the Dominion in the Gamma Quadrant. And the other powers, whatever they might try, will not be able to push against that. He is right, but I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that the Federation twice has overtly been okay with the genocide of the Founders. Now, the thing is, he is right. But the reason they were okay with that was because the Founders were an existential threat. Not the Dominion, the Founders. Now, I know that's not making it much better, but in my opinion, that is a necessary gradient to the gray here. That if the Founders were removed, they wouldn't need to go in and conquer the... In fact, they would never actually try to go in and conquer the Dominion. Unless they had to do so because it was an existential threat, in which case they would try everything they can to prevent a long slog-out war, which ironically means going after the founders themselves. So yes, very deliberate, very knowing, uh, very obvious, and yet very well done. Cold War situation, actually. The founders are so afraid that they make themselves a threat that the Federation is so afraid of that both end up basically responding to each other with levels of threat and force that they otherwise might not use. Because they have to, because the other side is that big of a threat, because they're afraid of the other side. Now, what I love about this scene, and we, we could debate the morality of this for a long time and the politics of this. The politics are very clear, actually, I think. But the morality is a far more gray situation. But what I really love is that it's the faith of one person that changes all of this. Garak, of course, is livid and wants her to die and suffer and scream. Revenge, pain. And I don't blame him at all. I don't. Odo does have a real plan in mind, finally, for the first time when dealing with his people. He really does have an actual idea here. Garrick says no, and actually threatens Odo with a gun, which says a lot, considering how much Garrick you know, has respect and, and tolerance and friendship with Odo. But Kira 
trusts Odo. So Kira pulls Garrick down. That is such a powerful thing, and so very Star Trek. The faith of one person changes the fate of the galaxy, literally, because Kira's faith and trust in Odo is what allows him to try what he does, and then the female changeling puts her faith and trust in Odo. That's powerful, and I love that moment. For all of the debate of the politics and the morality and the, the ethics and the, the consequences, that moment is incredibly powerful for me. I love it. I love it every time I see it. So the female changeling goes, orders everyone down. One person does this. Odo, of course, has to go back to the link. We'll circle back to that point. Don't forget it. This cuts to Martok, Ross, and Sisko in the battered ruins of Cardassia. And Martok is drinking heartily and very happy about it. Of course he is. It's a victory, victorious, successful war. Ross and Sisko don't. I like this moment, too. Because, again, it is very Star Trek. What Star Trek tends to be about, at its core, for me, is the idealistic optimism about what we might become. Because there's a world of difference between defeating an enemy and celebrating their death and defeating an enemy and mourning their loss. And that's what Ross and Sisko do. They mourn the loss of their enemy. And that's complicated. That's, that's, that's optimistic. That's idealistic. Some might even call it foolish. And some would be right to do so. But it's very human. And I like that. Ross uh, quotes MacArthur. She surrenders. I looked up the actual treaty. You can find a, a bit of a copy of it because I actually sold the physical prop. Um, the, she surrenders into the custody and agrees to be tried and, and put into prison for like 20 years until Star Trek Online comes around. Uh, the Dominion withdraws in its entirety all personnel, all ships, all everything from the Alpha Quadrant, and I assume Beta Quadrant as well. And uh, the borders are restored to the places they were at prior to the Dominion War. In, 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 interesting. Now, that's, that's the most interesting one for me. Sorry. Because, initiating that. Interesting. Because that means that the Breen go back to what they were, and they probably don't have the forces to contest that. But that also means the Cardassians go back to what they were. Now, the Cardassians are ruined husk, but all of a sudden this treaty now puts into writ uh, that they have territory. This is avoiding a World War I Germany scenario. It's very minor and very tiny, but it's a nice little thing slid under the rug that means that Cardassia, as a people and as a culture, and whatever organization builds up out of the ruins of this one, has a chance at getting better rather than basically having to lean on the concept of the Union again. Because the Cardassian Union is dead. They're gone. That, that's already pretty much written stone at this point. But it's an interesting little tidbit. Anyway, so we see our first, our very first goodbye. This brings me to the third of the three parts of this episode. We talked about the Pares and how stupid they were. We talked about the war. This is the true unique thing of what you leave behind. It has an epilogue. No Star Trek as of the moment of me writing this and, and, you know, saying this, I guess this isn't really writing, the moment of me recording this, no Star Trek has ever had an epilogue like this. They've had endings. They've had send-offs. You know, the original crew had Star Trek VI. Um, 
The TNG had all good things. Voyager kind of had Endgame, <laughs> kind of. Uh, Enterprise had, you know, the Terra Prime thing. You know, they've, there have been send-offs, but there's never been an epilogue what happens afterwards, a denouement of sorts. And I love this. And that, I've already mentioned this. That's what makes this so unique. So the first thing we see is Bashir and Garrick. That's the first goodbye we get. And Garrick leaves the show at this point. It's a powerful moment because what can Bashir possibly say in the wake of this tragedy? You know, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. That's just because of the way we process things as people. It's hard to think of millions of dead. But Garrick does an excellent job of portraying the tragedy of that. You'll notice he doesn't regret the loss of the Union. He himself has spoken about how the Union should have died and is long since dead. No, what he regrets is the loss of the culture, the art, the people. The Cardassians were what he was loyal to. And that Cardassia is basically gone. Whatever comes next will be a different, a new one. And he ends it on a good note with Bashir. He appreciates Bashir. He thinks the Federation and Starfleet and humans are all idealistic and stupid, but he has genuine respect for the individual of Bashir. That keeps coming up in these final episodes, doesn't it? I love his thing, by the way. We live in uncertain times. Martok asks Worf to become his chief ambassador. I really like this. I asked uh, just a few episodes ago, you know, what do you think? As who would be a better chancellor, Worf or Martok? Well, it looks like we don't really have to pick. <laughs> I was kind of being facetious back then because I knew this was coming, obviously. The idea here is that both of them are now effectively in charge of the Klingon culture. And once again, Klingon culture is going to be irrevocably altered by this. At least that's the hope, because it needs to, because the Klingon Empire is aged and corrupt and decadent. It needs this kind of change. And I really hope that Martok and Worf are the two to actually make that happen. Who better? The two true Klingons, right? One was just a lowly man who worked his way up to the top, and one's frickin' Worf, the son of Moog. There's a reason I call that son of Moog effect. Odo and Kira. <laughs> I've commented before on how much it pisses me off that he just wants to go back to his people. But at least here, it is made very clear he is going back and staying back with his people for a very good reason. They need to change, too. You're sensing the trend here, right? I mean, we've already had the, the Klingons change, the, 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 the Ferengi change, now we're having the Cardassians change, and the Klingons changing again. Now the, the founders need to change. The Dominion needs to change. And it's true. And frankly, this is the only way that could happen. Odo might be able to convince them to change their way of thinking to the point where they're not horrifically genocidal monsters. We'll see. STO continues that plot thread and does some really good stuff with it, in my opinion. I won't spoil that here, but... So, we have the party scene. The party scene's just just feels. That's all it is. It's just feels. One of the things I like doing this particular time around is trying to spot the actors in the background. And I noticed the camera goes out of its way to make sure the camera's always pointing at at least one of the guest stars in the background. You can see Casey Biggs back there. You can see Jeffrey Combs. Uh, I picked out Renee Echeverria several times. Iris Stephen Bear was really obvious. Um, you can see Cecily Adams. A whole bunch of people back there. I'm, I'm not going to go down the whole list. A lot of people there. Apparently, not a visitor was actually crying during this, uh, and she was not the only one, it's worth noting, but I mention her specifically because she ruined a couple of takes because she was crying so hard. 
and I'm starting to get hit here too, so let's move on, because then, then it goes to the flashback sequence. Now, actually, before I talk about how awesome the sequence is, I have to talk about how awful it is, because Judd Z is not in it. This is the harsh reality of television production, because in order to get Jadzia in it, they had to go through her manager. And her manager is the one who actually makes the call there, because most actors don't actually make their own decisions with regards to what they do. They have an agent, and the agent makes this. I've actually talked about this before, and it's a really kind of not often spoken of unpleasant underbelly to Hollywood in general, because those agents actually have a tremendous amount of power. Since you have to go through the agent, and the agent doesn't have to get the the, the support or opinion of the person they're they're you know uh, representing, we don't actually know specifically what her reaction to this whole thing was, what what the actress's uh, Terry Farrell's feelings on this matter were, because I've never seen any specific interviews talking about it or anything really discussing it. What we do know is that the the manager. The agents flat out said, we're going to need a whole bunch of money for this. And they were like, we can't afford that. And that's why Judzia is not in this episode at all. And it sucks. She should have been. You'll notice that almost all of the war flashbacks are very recent, because a lot of the old ones would have included her. Yeah. Uh, O'Brien has his flashbacks, as he's saying. But he, found, he finds, uh, what's his, I forget his name, Travis. He finds Travis. That, that was a nice touch. And uh, there's, no, there's no dialogue. In fact, there's no sound. It's just the music playing. And it's this really somber song. I'm glad they included the drinking scene with O'Brien. Worf has his flashbacks. Odo and his bucket. You know, the Kira. Um, Cork has his flashbacks. Jake has his. We see the first shot from Emissary. Of course, quote, Quark is the one to notice Odo's trying to slip out. I love their goodbye. Uh, even the actors tend to agree with me on this. The idea is that it's not a goodbye, it's a see you later. The game is afoot, I believe is how Armin Shimmerman put it. But I love it because Odo already said what he needs to say before Quark showed up. What I mean by that is Odo says, you know, I just want to slip out the back, and she's like, you sure you don't want to say goodbye? And he says, if they don't understand how I feel now, a few other words aren't going to add to it. And that's exactly true, because Quark does know how he feels. Even her his line, which is semi-comical, is 100% sincere. That man loves me. It's written all over his back. And he salutes him. He toasts him, actually, excuse me, as he leaves. It's a good scene. It's a good scene. And, of course, Odo does finally admit to Kira in private, yes, even Quark. Um, O'Brien and Bashir have a very brief goodbye. But it's so appropriate. I've given so much praise, so much gushing about the, the friendship and the connection between O'Brien and Bashir. And I'm starting to tear up. Holy crap. They don't need words. They look at each other. Big hug. Big hug. See you later. That's, that's just great. That's exactly what that should be. Um, then... Then, uh, then, yeah, Kira and Odo are on the Great Lake. Uh, that is to say, the, the Great Link Lake. The Link Lake. And, uh, you know, they say their final goodbyes. It's basically the final, final, final goodbye. Well, that's not true. There's one more of the, of the episode. And I don't, I don't know what to say to it. It's a damn shame that it's presented as so final. 
What's funny is the uh, the DS9 relaunch novels and Star Trek Online, which are the two you know most commonly accepted uh, continuity or continuing the story things uh, amongst all the friends and fans I've talked to about this. Both of them bring Odo back. It's like no, no, come on, let's go, let's go. It takes years. It takes years upon years because he's got to convince the founders and he's got to change the thinking. But he does eventually come back and they do eventually reunite and that's awesome because they should. Look, I like a good tragic ending as much as anybody, but you know what I love even more is an earned happy ending. My God. Kira's now in charge of the station. Nog's a lieutenant. Oh, and he's got to go do cargo inventories. That's a nice touch. And she picks up that damn baseball. I, it is, that baseball is the symbol of all that Deep Space Nine is out of character. That, you remember that baseball? Because it came up in the episode, If Wishes Were Horses, which was garbage. It was a junk episode. But Cisco was left over with the baseball, and they took it, and they turned it into something great, and it became a thing of the command of the station. Dukat did it, you know, and now Kira does it. It's a, great, it's a great thing. And that's DS9 in a nutshell. DS9 has always been backloaded. They didn't plan out any of this crap, with only a few exceptions. But they have improved. And they took this stew and made it into something marvelous. <sighs> um, you know, Morn, he's still there. Hair growth. I, eh, I don't think hair would look good on him. <laughs> um, uh, Bashir is talking about the possibility of doing the Battle of Thermopylae, which they pronounce differently, but whatever. I usually hear it Thermopylae, so whatever. And uh, betting pools are illegal for the new Kai. I wonder why. That's a weird rule to have. But yeah, Kira harassing Quark about betting is, is again, another little nice bookend. Um, oh, God, the final shot kills me every time I say it. Um, the more things change, the more things stay the same. It's the final spoken words of the series by Quark. Because, of course, it's Quark. And... That final shot kills me. Kira and Jake just staring out. Kira waiting for Odo and Jake waiting for Sisko. And the promise and hope that both of them will come back someday. Although, funnily enough, when they wrote, when they scripted, or excuse me, filmed that scene, they actually didn't think Sisko was going to come back. They went back and changed that later. The episode title comes from the phrase, All that you take with you is what you leave behind. And it's a very powerful quote. It means so much because I don't think DS9 is ever going to leave me. And I bet it's not going to leave you guys either. I have spent the better part of two years and four months of my life dedicated to this show. I know that's nothing compared to the seven they spent. But this has been an endeavor for me. November 7th. I looked it up. November 7th, 2017. It's been a hell of a road, guys. I hope you enjoyed it with me. I'm sorry. I'm really starting to tear up. I really am. It's okay, we're going to keep going. I've got TOS and Enterprise to cover. But I hope, I, I really, really hope this has meant at least a fraction as much to you guys as it has to me. Here's to another two years.